We're going to be taking a break this morning from the family series and spending most of our time in Exodus chapter 15 this morning. So I encourage you to open up your Old Testaments to that place. Exodus chapter 15. Appreciate Kurt leading that song for us. In the phrase in the chorus that we just sang, we talked about the song of Moses and of the Lamb, singing that song and dwelling with Jesus evermore. Have you ever wondered what that phrase means, the song of Moses? Moses actually had two songs, one at the beginning of the time in the wilderness that he led the Israelites in, and one at the very end, in the end of Deuteronomy. We're not going to study that one. What we're going to do is study the one in Exodus 15. Songs in the Bible are very interesting because there's a lot of them. Um, In fact, we have a whole book of our Bibles, the book of Psalms, that has 150 songs that the Israelites would sing, kind of packed into one book. And uh, often the elders will read one of those songs to us before we enter our worship service. But uh, the, the song that we're going to be studying this morning, I think, is the most ancient song in the Bible. And I say I think because Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses, obviously written in the time that he lived in. But I think this one in Exodus 15 is probably the first song that was ever recorded. And it is a song that was sung by Moses and by the people, but it's not a song about Moses. It's not going to talk about his life. It's not going to enter into any details about his personal story. It's a song about the Lord, actually, about what the Lord has accomplished for his people. And this song is so helpful for us, I think, to study right before we partake of the Lord's Supper Because this is the song of Moses, and when we go to Revelation 15 at the end of the sermon, we're going to see how this is not just the song of Moses, it's of also of the Lamb that we're going to sing as Christians. This has become not just an ancient Israelite song, but the anthem of Jesus' people. So we're going to look there uh, at that passage in a little bit in Revelation. But for right now, let's digest this particular song together and read this together from 1 through 18 in chapter 15 of Exodus. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. 
The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your winds. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. I want us to to look at the various parts of this song. And then we're going to talk about big themes that we can extract to see how they looked at God and how we can look at God together. And then we'll go to Revelation. I want you to notice how the first ten verses have this idea behind them. That God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the slaves, He easily defeated the strongest force that the Israelite people had ever known. They were living under the rule and the thumb of the mightiest empire in that area of the world at that particular time. You can notice from... Chapter 14, in the description of the army that Pharaoh is able to call out. Um, In chapter 14, verse 6 and verse 7, he's got his chariot. He took his army. Verse 7, Pharaoh took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So Pharaoh has this enormous force at his disposal to use in battle wherever he wants to, to subjugate the people. And so Israel understood what God had taken them out of. They understood that they were completely powerless and helpless before this group of strong people. But you know what the Israelites had seen up to this point in Exodus 15? They had seen an 80-year-old shepherd waltz into the throne room of the Pharaoh himself and tell him to his face that the God of the Hebrews said for him to release all these people that they had been holding in bondage for hundreds of years. And after Pharaoh kept telling Moses and Aaron no over and over and over, the Israelites watched as plague after plague after plague devastated the country of Egypt. And they watched 
all of the Egyptians mourning at, at when the last plague came, the death of the firstborn children and animals, they, they heard the mournings and the cries of the anguished families that they were then leaving. And then when they got to the Red Sea, as they see this enormous body of water in front of them, and this enormous Egyptian army behind them, and they're hemmed in between both of those, and they understand that there's nowhere for them to go, they see God parting the Red Sea, creating these giant walls of water on either side of them, um, and, and this path of dry land in the middle for them to cross. And then when they cross it and they see the Egyptians coming in after them in chapter 14, they see that enormous body of water come back in on itself and drown this entire army of hundreds, if not thousands of people. All in a moment. And they're gone. Pharaoh, like we just read back there in chapter 14, 6, and 7, Pharaoh didn't hold back when he tried to pursue these Israelites that he had finally said, you can go. He, he fired the equivalent of all of his nuclear missiles at them. Everybody that he could round up together, what was left of the might that he had, he threw it at the Egyptian, at the Israelites. And the Israelites understood, we're no match for these people, but that's okay because the Egyptians are no match for this God. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 15, in the very first verse of the song, notice how it goes immediately to the description of what God did. The horse and the rider, the chariot, the, the super tank of the ancient world, that's been demolished, that's been thrown into the sea. Verse 4, uh, the chariots, the host, he cast into the sea. Uh, single-handedly, God is doing this. There's not Israelite help in, anywhere in here in this passage. Verse 6, he shatters the enemy. It's not as if this battle was a tie or it was a stalemate. Um, I enjoy reading a lot of history about battles that were fought. And sometimes, in, especially like in our Civil War that we fought in the 1860s, uh, north and south, sometimes they'll read a description of battle where the armies just come out and they clash, and then everybody just kind of goes back to their camp at night and nothing was really accomplished. That is not like this battle at all. At the end of the day, there is nobody left standing on the Egyptian side. They're all gone. Verse 7. I like this picture that it gives us. When God unleashes His fury, it's like stubble burning up. Stubble is obviously not like hard wood that you burn in a fire that lasts for you know many minutes. Stubble has a snap, crackle, and a pop. In 30 seconds, it's done. And you've got to get something else to put in your fire because that stuff has been burned up. Um, so God's foes didn't stand a chance. That's the point of the first ten verses. And, and building off of that, the next set of verses is all about then how no God compares to the true God. Who is like you, O Lord? He asks in that question in verse 11. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You know, if, if you follow sports at all, 
you know that in, in pretty much every sport, whether you're talking about football or baseball or basketball, there's always this discussion of who's the GOAT. Who is the greatest of all time? Um, I'll use basketball as one example. I bet if we went around the room, and those of you who actually care about basketball, if I just asked you, who was the best player of all time? I bet somebody in here would say Michael Jordan. (laughs) Somebody would probably say LeBron. Um, and with the people who are especially liking the Celtics, um, some people would probably say Larry, Larry Bird, okay. Maybe Bill Russell or some of the great Celtics of the past. They're all in that discussion together. But the interesting thing about that discussion is that for every person that you could point to and say, that's the guy, that's the one, he was the best. Um, Somebody else could come alongside of you and say, well, you can make a legitimate argument for this person. Because when this person came onto the court, he dominated. And he inspired his teammates. And he could shoot this. And he could dunk that. Um, and, And so the debate just rages on and on. And we'll debate that forever. Because there's... There's always this, uh, th- this case that you could make for all of these good players. But when the exodus happened, there was no debate. There was no argument about who was the best God, who was the greatest. Flip back in your Bibles real quick to chapter 12. I want you to notice something in, ver- in verse 12 of chapter 12. I want you to notice what God said He was going to do. Why is He leading the people out? Is this just about Pharaoh? No, look what it's about. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So this was really what this was all about. The plagues and this climactic, dramatic crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. It's about God proving that there is no spiritual being in the heavenly places that can possibly compare to His glory and His might. He is the greatest of all the gods. And the interesting thing about that is everybody knows it now. (laughs) It's not just the Israelites. It's not just the Egyptians, because now they've been beaten up on to this extreme degree. Now, everybody in the world understands who this God is. You look at verses 14 through 16, you've got a description of all of these different peoples. You've got, um, you got the Philistines there in verse 14. They're scared. Verse 15, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites are terrified. I just think this is so neat because when Moses first got to Pharaoh, you remember what Pharaoh's first reaction was when, when Moses said, Hey, Yahweh says, let my people go. Remember Pharaoh's reaction was, I don't know who you're talking about. Okay, so you've got a God. Well, I've got gods too. And I like my slaves. I like you guys making bricks for me. I'm going to keep them. I don't really care whoever this God is. I'm not going to listen to his voice. 
Well, everybody is now listening to the voice of this God, and everybody is scared to death of this, this God. Now, notice how when, later on when we get to Joshua, you remember how Rahab, when she is taking in the couple of spies that have come to Jericho right before Joshua, 40, 40 years after this happens, by the way, we're talking decades down the road, everybody still remembers this. Flip over real quick to Joshua chapter 2. I want to show you this passage real quick. Because Rahab actually uses some of the same language that we see in this song of Moses when she describes the attitude of all the Canaanites that she's living amongst. She says, she says to these Israelite guys um, in chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 9, when the guys lay down, she, she went to them on the roof, verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord, your God, Yahweh, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Melt away. That's the same language that we just read in Exodus 15 about how, verse 15, the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away from before, not the Israelites per se, but the God who is leading these people is terrifying. And, and we didn't see this even in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, the Israelites are lined up to fight against the Philistines. And the Philistines hear this noise coming from the Israelite camp and they hear the Ark of the Covenant. They learn that it's come into the Israelite camp and they say to themselves, oh boy, we're in trouble. 1 Samuel 4, 8. Woe is us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? For these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Nobody forgot this. Everybody in the general area remembered and learned about who this God is and who He was. And then the last part of this song is so neat. Because if you go to verses 17 and 18 of Exodus 15, you see not just a snapshot into the rest of Israelite history, I believe you're also going to see a snapshot into what the rest of the Bible is going to be like. And our story is woven into these verses as well. Um, Because notice how it says in here that God's going to take them to a mountain. Which is different from where they used to live. Egypt is... I've never been to Egypt. But as far as I know, it's pretty much flat as a pancake. It's desert. It's Nile River. And on either side, it's just this ocean of sand. Um, Maybe a little bit more than that. But I think that's basically Egypt. (laughs) And, And so God is taking them from that area to the mountains of Canaan, and specifically he's going to plant them on his holy mountain, Jerusalem. He's going to give that to David, and on that place he's going to build a sanctuary. Did you see what it says here in verse 17? You'll bring them in, plant them on your mountain, in the, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary... O Lord, which your hands have established, and the Lord's going to reign there forever and ever. So, in, in the most immediate sense, he's talking about what they're going to do when they get into their promised land. But in a larger sense, this is talking about us. 
God is leading us as Jesus' people to a holy, eternal mountain that He has prepared for us. And in that place, we will reign with God as He reigns as King. The the Israelites understood that there were kings like Saul, uh, especially David, and David's sons who sat on thrones and reigned as kings, but they understood that the Lord was truly their king. And He is ours. And we're going to be with Him forever. That's the picture we're given here in 17 and 18. We're in view of what He says here in this song. Alright, now, let's, let's pull some things out of, of this song that we've been looking at. I, wanna, I want us to really clearly see this idea that over and over, we're talking about the glory of God in this passage. Frankly, I don't know that I do enough teaching about the glory of God because I'm convicted when I read passages like this. This idea is all over the scriptures and it is all over this particular passage. Here are a couple of examples here in in 1, 6 and 11. Notice how the very first thing it says, I will sing the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Verse 6, look at there. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Verse 11, who is like you? End of the verse. Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. I want you to to have your Bible and turn back to Exodus 14 for a second. Because what they're singing about in this song is very much connected to what happened in the event and what the Lord said He was going to do. The point of all this, look at chapter 14, back in verse 4. Notice what he tells tells Moses and the people. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. Look at chapter 14, verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them into the Red Sea. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the next verse, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So over and over, what they're singing about is what God actually said right before this, that uh, this is why I'm going to do this. Now, what, what does this mean? God is glorious. I think this is one of those Bible words uh, that we repeat in church and we read it in our Bibles, and we don't sometimes stop to really consider what it actually is talking about. Um, when I looked up the word the, in the Hebrew that they use here for glory, It just simply means to grow tall, to be high, to rise up. I think a lot of you in this room probably know Jeff and Scott Smelser. You know, when Jeff and Scott Smelser walk into a room, because they're almost always the tallest people in the room, head and shoulders above everybody else, everybody's eyes just go up and look at them. Because there they are, elevated above everybody else. And that's the idea here of what God is talking about of of His events. He has done things that are so amazing 
and so astounding that they elevate his stature to such an extent that they demand, the, the events that he has accomplished demand everybody's attention and fixed gaze upon him. So I want to I bring this home to us. What, what do we glory in? Or another way of asking that question, what do we consider glorious? What have we elevated? What has risen up in our minds and our hearts that we pay attention to? Um, if you have kids, and a lot of you in here have kids, um, chances are you glory in the accomplishments, the growth, the good things that you see your children doing, and you think about that, um, and, and you, you talk about that to other people, about your kids, about how proud you are of them and what they're doing in their lives. Um, in the jobs that you have, chances are you glory in being able to apply your mind or your physical strength to a building something or accomplishing something, you take pride and satisfaction in that, as you should. You have a hobby. Chances are you glory in collecting something uh, or practicing something and becoming proficient in it. Uh, whatever it is, what do you glory in? Is Jesus what you glory in the most? Is he what you talk about the most? Is he what you think about in your spare moments as you're in the shower, as you're driving down the road, as you're getting a breath to contemplate your life? Does your mind and does your heart immediately go to all of these interests that you have or the children or the spouse or the, the relative or the job or whatever it is in your life that you look up to and hold dear to yourself or is Jesus the person that you look up to and consider greatest in your life? Is He in the first place? We have a moment in just a few minutes to sit down and think about Jesus in a concentrated way in the Lord's Supper, to remember His sacrifice, His body, His blood, what that means for us. Do you think about this really only now, once a week, on the first day when we come together, or is this something that is really real to you on a daily basis? God is glorious. And he wasn't just glorious in Exodus 15 at the Red Sea. He is glorious now. And even in a greater way because of the cross that we celebrate now. Um, we've got to think about that. That's got to be important to us. Um, something else that I think is so neat about Exodus 15 and the song of Moses is that over and over it's making the point that God fights for his people in a very ferocious way so that they don't have to be ferocious for their own sakes, on, on their own behalf. Look at, look at verse 3. Um, I like this. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a man. The Lord's not a man. The Lord is a spirit. Now, <laughs> looking forward to Jesus, the Lord became a man. 
and He wards on our behalf. But here, we're just looking at an image. We're just looking at a picture. This poetic language to say, the Lord's out there on the front line fighting this enemy that we don't have the power to fight ourselves. So the Lord's a man of war. But notice, notice this here in, in verse 6. Your right hand, your right hand shatters the enemy. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. Why all this language about the right hand? Or not the left hand? Well, obviously, for most people, and obviously if you're a left-handed person, we don't mean to diss you or disrespect you at all, but for most people, the right hand is the dominant hand. That's the hand you're going to use for complicated tasks that's definitely the hand you're going to use in battle uh, to fight your enemy. Um, and, and so this is a way of saying God held nothing back when he fought Pharaoh and, and delivered his people. He wasn't, just like Pharaoh didn't hold anything back from fighting the Israelites. I'm going to send all of my chariots. Every last soldier I've got is going to charge in there and try to get those people. God had the same attitude. So God didn't even need to unleash his full power on Pharaoh. Uh, he could fight Pharaoh with both hands tied behind his back. But this is, this is a picture of just how much God devotes himself to defending us. I think it's just a special application because we don't have to worry. Because this is true, we don't have to stress. We don't have to fight other people. We don't have to take vengeance upon others and feel personally responsible for defending our names and our reputations and and who we are in the eyes of other people. Romans 12 makes the same point. Paul says there, leave vengeance to God. He will repay the evildoer. You don't have to worry about that. All you have to do is with a peaceful attitude and demeanor, go throughout life doing the work that Jesus has put in front of you to do, and God will take care of the rest. That's Romans 12, verse 19. God has already taken out our chief accuser. In the cross, he's defeated the devil, um, the greatest enemy that we could ever face. And so any enemy that you come across on a daily basis is just to a much lesser extent a foe that the Lord's going to take care of. Um, so we don't have to worry. And ultimately we don't have to worry because God is guiding His people to the place where He lives and reigns. Notice, we talked a lot already about the end of the song, but did you notice that verse 13 also makes this point? Where He says... Right after he asks the question, who's like the Lord among the gods? Verse 13 says, you have led your steadfast, in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, the place where you live. And then in verse 17, he'll basically say the same thing. This is so neat to me. Um, I, I'm right now reading in a, a Civil War book a biography about Ulysses S. Grant, the Union general who led the victorious Union armies against the South and later became our president. Um, there was a big discussion after the slaves were freed by the politicians in Washington about what do we do with all these slaves now? 
who have now become free. And a lot of people said, what we need to do is we need to create a colony in the Caribbean or a colony in Africa and ship all these black people out of our country. Because we don't want to live with them. We're fine to free them from their slavery, but we don't want them here living with us. And fortunately, those plans were tabled. Um, but this is not the attitude of our, of our God here. Because he wants to free the slaves and he wants to live with them after he has done that. He's not going to say, okay, now you're going to get out there, you can be your own people, see you later. Good luck, have a great life. He's going to say, I'm going to take you through this wilderness to get to the place where I live. And that's where you're going to be. And this is not a temporary situation. It's not a, I'm going to invite you as like three or four week guests to be in my home. Um, you know, Benjamin Franklin is supposed to have said that guests like fish begin to stink after three days. Um, that's the way Benjamin Franklin felt about that. That's the way sometimes we might be tempted to feel about people that we invite into our home. This is not the attitude of God. <laughs> he says, I want to keep you with me. You're not temporary visitors. You are now family. You are now people that belong to me. Notice, notice what he said in the text. What did God do with these people? He purchased. Notice the language of the text. He purchased them. In verse, end of verse 16. When you buy something, it belongs to you now. It's yours. And you don't give it away. Especially if it's something of great and extraordinary value. That's the way that he thinks about us. So we can stay with him forever. Now, this kind of welcome, this ought to really hit a lot of different personalities in this room. Because if you are somebody who carries guilt or shame because you have, you have not lived very well, and that really bothers you, that really weighs upon you, and the sins that you've committed in the past are just constantly there in the forefront of your minds, read this song again to see that God, despite knowing everything that the Israelites were, still embraced them to be His people. Um, if you struggle with arrogance, struggle with pride, if you struggle with the idea that people should listen to me because I'm a problem solver, I have my life together, I have thoughts that others should attach themselves to, read the song again to see that only the Lord has the power to deliver people from their bondage and, and take them to the place where He wants them to live. Regardless of who you are, of what you struggle with, what's in your mind, what's in your heart, God touches you in this song in a really neat way. So now I want to get to this. I told you we were going to Revelation. We're going to go to Revelation now. Go to Revelation 15. So we're in Exodus 15. Now we're going to Revelation 15. And I want to, to end here. 
Because I, I think it's, it's legitimate to ask this question. Uh, why, why should we really pay very close attention to this? Because this was a song that the Israelites sung after they got delivered from the Egyptians. We're not getting delivered from Egyptians. Um, why does this relate to us? This is an Old Testament thing. But I want, I want you to notice that this song is mentioned in this last book of the New Testament to describe the anthem that Christians now sing. Sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by and by and dwell with Jesus evermore. That's what these people are doing in Revelation. Look at this. Then I saw, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. Plagues. See the connection here? Uh, Which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses." the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Alright, did you catch the details in here? Did you soak them up? Who's singing? Christians are singing. Why are they singing? Because they just defeated this amazingly, extraordinarily violent beast that was mentioned back in chapter 13, which I believe is a way of talking about the Roman Empire. So these Christians are singing, and what are they singing? They're singing the song of Moses, tacked onto it, and the song of the Lamb, of Jesus, And where are they singing? Where are they singing? Look at the text. They're standing beside a sea. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly the situation in Exodus. They're standing beside the Red Sea that God had just parted for them, destroyed their enemies, and now they're singing this victory song, understanding what has just happened. That's the situation for these Christians. All enemies will fall before the Lamb of God, who has shed His own blood to ensure that we get to stand with Him on the holy mountain. You know why this is such a big deal? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. And in Luke chapter 9, in verse 31, we're told that Moses was talking to Jesus about his upcoming departure. The word departure is in most of our English translations, but in the original language that that was written in, it's the word exodon, which can be translated exodus. It's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus went up with a handful of His disciples. His clothing was 
made brilliantly white. And then these two guys appeared and started talking together. They're talking about his exodus. His death, his burial, and his resurrection are described with this word, exodus. This is what this is all about. This is the meaning behind the sacrifice. This is the victory that we share in. This is what we celebrate every week. Whether we explicitly talk about the Exodus or not, today we are. But every week, this is the meaning behind what we do, what we have in Jesus Christ. When you feel weak in your life, when you... When you don't know how you're going to carry on, when you face all these things in life that beat you down and threaten to make you throw in the towel on everything, remember this, that He has conquered. And you, whether, whether it is super obvious on some days or not, you have conquered with Him. And one day, that is going to become a reality that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands in the new bodies He gives us, in the new world that He hands to His people. Press forward to that day. And for right now, before He comes, let's think about what He accomplished while He was here.